Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Adelia Kirchner. But first, for more information about the Stable of Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View. While you're there, please subscribe. Still free for now. Welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Ms. Adelia Kirchner. Adelia Kirchner is a Tennessee resident and reporter for the Tennessee Conservative, currently the host of Subtle Rampage podcast, giving viewpoints of a young Christian conservative female. She has also worked for the South Dakota State Legislature and interned for Senator Bill Haggerty's office in Nashville. Uh, Adelia, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. I'm very excited. I've, I've oh. shouted you out a few times on the Tennessee Conservatives podcast, and now we finally get to have a conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like being there, and I've done that myself and uh, filled in for Brandon Lewis, and it's always a pleasure. So I'm glad to have you on and get to know you a little better. Um, I heard you are one of seven children. How did you survive the dinner table growing up with all that around? Uh, grab the food as fast as possible before it's all gone. Otherwise, you're not eating. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, I am the oldest of seven children. Uh, my parents are that, you know, Southern conservative Christian family, you know, just popping them out. Um, <laughs> but as a kid, you know, I hated it. I was always like, why didn't you just stop with me? I'm literally the perfect child. I remember very vividly doing a musical performance in my kitchen for my parents about how I was the perfect child and they should have stopped with me. Um, but <laughs> as I got older, I began to appreciate like how much it taught me. And now that I'm an adult, I can see how uh, it's helped me learn how to interact with people better. I think if I was an only child, I wouldn't have had... Uh, even close to the amount of conflict resolution training that I did experience. So I, I love it. I love being part of a big family. My siblings are some of my favorite people ever. So. And where did you fall in the seven? Were you the first or the fifth or the seventh? The first. I'm the, the oldest. First. Okay. So yes. raised below you. All right. So you also yes. had to be the uh, the leader and the moderator, which I can understand why you would want to go into journalism. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, tell me something first off. It seems like it's become rarer and rarer, rarer to find young folk like you that describe themselves as young Christian conservative, and you work for Brandon's conservative news website. How do you buck the trend and go with Christian conservative in your age group and peers? Well, it's definitely it definitely feels like you're pushing back against like this huge force of people who disagree with you. Um, I mean, even on like my, my own podcast that I do, I'll, I'll sometimes get comments from grown adults, I'm pretty sure, who are like, well, it's great that you're trying, but you know, most people your age don't think like this. So, you know, have fun with that. And I'm like, really? Who who would have thunk? It's not like I've noticed that. Um but no, it's it's definitely um, it's definitely interesting. I think that uh, especially coming to terms with what I believed politically uh, during COVID, um, I did feel very very alone because uh, people weren't really gathering as much, and so a lot of what I was seeing was online, and things were very tense, and so a lot of people were posting about political stances online, and so a lot of what I was seeing was. Uh, things that I didn't agree with. And I was like, I really do feel alone. But luckily, my parents are 
very supportive of my belief system, of course, but, you know, they were also always very encouraging of, you know, they didn't say you have to believe this, which is why I didn't really pick out exactly what I believed, exactly what I identified as a Christian conservative. I didn't pick that out until I was like 17, 18, because I I was just going with, uh, I'm a Christian, this is what I believe. And then eventually I was like, oh, I kind of have to like, if I'm going to profess these beliefs, I kind of have to make a choice here. And, um, and my best friend, she is 23. She is a Christian conservative. So I have her, um, for keeping my sanity. Um, and I, I did find some people to surround myself with that were like-minded, but it's, it's still very hard because, uh, I, when I was on a college campus or whatever, even a Christian college campus for a little bit, most of the people my age did not, uh, agree with my politics. So yeah. it's very hard, but I do get a lot of pats on the back from, uh, older people. So I'll take it. Yeah. Well, if you have your parents and your best friends and God on your side, who can be against you, right? So have you been canceled yet? And I'm speaking as somebody who is fresh out of Twitter jail myself. I don't know if you've been following (laughs) that, but uh, have you been canceled? I don't think I would consider myself canceled yet, Um, but that's probably because I'm not quite as active on social media as a lot of people are. Um, I probably should be. It would probably be good for my platform, but uh, it just seems like so much work to me. I'm not really a social media person, so if I was active on it, I probably would have gotten canceled, but I tend to keep my thoughts a little more tame. Well, we covered quite closely uh, Riley Gaines, another Tennessean who, you know, was uh, locked in a closet basically at San Francisco University trying to avoid the mob. Has the mob come for you since you're on the right and you're in your journalism? Um, Well, actually, not not too terribly much. Um, I I think if we had like a bigger platform outside of just Tennessee politics, um, I might have gotten attacked a little bit more. Um, But... Uh, I did write an article a couple of weeks ago on the the Tennessee Aquarium sponsoring a booth at the Chattanooga Pride Festival. And when I was writing that, uh, Jason Vaughn, who runs the newspaper pretty much, he was like, <laughs> he was like, do you want your name on this? He's like, you don't have to put your name on this. He's like, just in case, because it'll probably make a lot of people angry on the left. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, I, I haven't ever really worried about that before. I just kind of put my stuff out there. It's not like... Uh, you know, I have like a uh, some higher up job to protect or anything, you know, I might as well just slap my name on it. But uh, I wrote the article and I'm looking at the thing and I'm like, all I did was pull quotes from the Tennessee Aquarium's flyer that they sent out to their employees. I spoke to the Tennessee communications director, dude. I pulled a quote from him and then I pulled quotes from like a Patriots Engage post on social media. I was like, nothing in this is me. I'm like, I'm just pulling quotes and telling information. So I sent that over and I was like, just leave my name on it. I'm like, if people want to be mad at me for this, (laughs) then that's fine because I didn't do anything except for give them information. And sure enough, you go to that article right now, the comments on the webpage are a bunch of left-leaning people who were upset about the sensationalist journalism uh, of that article. But (laughs) At a website called the Tennessee Conservative News, um, that headline is called "The Tennessee Aquarium Has Been Confirmed as an Official Sponsor of This Year's Chattanooga Pride Festival." I can do you one better. Mm. The Seattle Aquarium, where Steve is, just sponsored a drag show in the taxpayer-funded uh, aquarium. So there's your family-friendly ooh. sea creatures there. No verification <laughs> if producer Steve was there or not. Anyway, we'll get to that later. But it's uh, very hip and cool to be on the left, where the woke is. 
Um, <laughs> so do you find a lot of your young friends maybe in favor of this pride stuff or are they against it and the media makes us think it's popular? Um, well, <laughs> I, I, I have a bit of a different approach to friendship than a lot of, um, people I know do. So my, my circle is quite tight. And then the people that I hang out with that aren't my friends, um, they're, they're just acquaintances to me. I, I would say as far as my acquaintances go, um, the, the LGBTQ stuff is pretty prevalent. Um, as far as my friend circle goes, it's not so much, uh, but, just the other night, I was actually in Nashville with my mother. I um, made her go see one of my favorite artists um, in concert. And I had a feeling, because a lot of these people in the music industry do lean left, um, I had a feeling that at some point I would hear something along the lines of what we did. And he got up there and he was pretty much just like, uh, and I would like to thank the Ally Coalition for coming out and sponsoring the event, blah, 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 blah. And my mom looked over at me and she's like, is that? And I'm like, yeah. And you could hear like the cheers, like the majority of the crowd is all people my age. And they were like obsessed with this like concept of the Ally Coalition sponsoring this event. And you could tell that a lot of them were LGBTQ plus. And it's just, it's very sad to see, but I think it is very prevalent, uh, but not for the reasons, like not for the fact that people are actually uh, LGBTQ plus. I think it's just because of other aspects. Like I think it's very much, in a, you get attention for it, you get community out of it. And, you know, it's kind of been pushed on people my age for a hot minute now. So hot minute for sure. How do you think Tennessee is as a place to live? You're not from Tennessee, right? You're a resident, but you we can tell that in a second, yeah. but uh, the media is generally very liberal, even though the voters are not. Your your website is the only other conservative one I can think of besides the show. Brandon says that all the time. How do you enjoy being the lone voice on the right in a red state doing journalism? Um, yeah, so actually, I, I was born in Florida, but I did grow up in Tennessee, just uh, south of Nashville, until uh, I was 13. Then I lived in Florida again, then high school in Texas, and then now I'm back here. Um, but I I find it very interesting, um, the response that we get being one of the only, like, conservative news sources because it's like it's not just that the people on the left don't want to read it don't like what we're saying but it's also that the the more republican establishment types don't like what we're writing either Interesting. Um, because we are focusing on the conservative aspect of things it's not just oh we're gonna stick by every republican that's ever been in office we're just gonna tell people what's actually happening what their representatives are actually voting and if conservatives don't like that you know, if they if they read it and they don't like it and they decide to replace you with somebody else, that's not our fault. That's not anti-Republican. That's not anti-conservative. That's just reporting the news and letting people decide what is in their best interest. So, right. yeah, the party folks don't like it, but the uh, the conservatives truly do, because mm -hmm. it's the only way they're going to get the facts. Um, do you actually have a beat like Nashville or politics in general, or do you cover whatever comes up that interests you or whatever Jason says, go do this? How, how do you? figure your news out that you're going to investigate it's mostly what I, whenever jason says go do this um sometimes brandon will say go do this uh and i i do but um if i find something that is interesting to me that i want to write on they're usually pretty pretty good about that and they just go okay well if there's a story there how about it um uh there was i i wrote something up on the table an lgbtq plus affirming church in nashville uh and that was something that i found that none of us even knew about and i was like this is crazy to me but so i wrote something up on that and that was fun um 
a lot of what gets assigned to me is interesting to me, but I do prefer to write the stories that are like more local. Like uh, there's a group in Wilson County, We the People, that's been fighting against some of the materials in uh, school libraries in their mm-hmm. county. Mm-hmm. And so I've written up a couple of articles uh, talking about what they've been doing. And I particularly enjoy that because you can see the payoff. You can see the people's response to uh, what you're reporting on. And it's just kind of cool. Yeah. So TTC is based in Chattanooga, but you cover all Tennessee or mostly Nashville, right? Tennessee politics. Uh, I mean, it will hit Nashville. We'll hit some of the counties that people don't even know where it's at. You know, it just depends wherever the news is coming from that we get. Okay. And you're you're the stringer. Uh, <laughs> this summer, you were in front of the Conservative Club of Toledo and gave a speech about how older generation conservatives can grow and engage younger generation conservatives, where the divide is, and how to bridge that gap. That's a mouthful. Tell us <laughs> about that group. Uh, were they receptive to your message since, you know, we're known as an old boys network? Um, I'm curious to know, um, and, and where is the divide? Yeah, so they they approached me because I, I guess uh, one of the members had had their grandson, I believe, come like tag along to one of their meetings and they have speakers on a pretty consistent basis. And But I guess this grandson showed up and saw the meeting and was, like told his granddad was like, I just feel like it would be cool if you guys had somebody younger come and speak, you know, because there's a lot of older people here. And and so uh, they, they kind of took that note and were like, OK, let's find a young person. So they reached out and they were like, we want you to talk about how to grow and can grow and engage young conservatives. And I, I was like, OK, that, that's easy. Sure. Um, and then I actually sat down to like, you know, write out a speech. And I was like, actually, I don't know. Isn't like how to grow and engage young conservatives? Isn't that just like growing and engaging anybody in politics or government? I don't know. And um, so I'm, I was sitting there trying to figure out how to write this speech. And um, eventually I kind of decided, OK, you know, we're just going to reach out to a bunch of young conservatives, as many as I can you know, resource and ask them where they think the divide is between older and younger conservatives. Because I was like, if we can kind of see where that's at and help people navigate that, then I feel like the growing and engaging of young conservatives would happen naturally, right? The mentoring would happen naturally if people's relationships were kind of there. Um, So I talked to a lot of people and I think if I recall correctly, a lot of the gap was just how people handled themselves um, on public platforms. Like, uh, a lot of younger conservatives that I spoke with, they felt like older conservatives were just so aggressive and uh, very, like, they didn't ever try to understand the other side. And that's how they felt. And so I, I was I was writing the speech, I put it all together. And the day before, I'm like talking to my mother, I'm like, I'm kind of nervous to go in front of this crowd of older people and pretty much tell them, this is where you're screwing up. <laughs> and, and I'm like, when I know that not all of them are screwing up, um, but like, this is this is what young people are feeling like. I was like, so how am I I'm nervous to get up and tell these people that. But uh, I, I feel like it was re- it was received very well. Uh, like the whole club was extremely welcoming. It was a great experience. I hadn't spoken like that in front of people in years. And so it, it was just great. 
and everybody came up to me afterwards i spent like an hour afterwards just talking with all these club members and they were just all like this is exactly it you are exactly right and they were like this is the problem that i've been having with like my grandkids or my niece or whatever and i think that this little part of what you said or this little part of what you said that really clicked thank you and i was like okay well i was nervous that these people were going to be upset with me but i'm glad that it worked yeah. so it well, was just job. great you're, yeah. you're amongst your people there um, CNN just had a poll out that kind of shows the moral decline over the generations where people, I don't have it in front of me, but, you know, 60 to 80 was 81% in favor of Israel defending themselves against uh, Hamas and, and maybe even going into the Gaza Strip. And then as it gets lower in the age bracket down to the, the Gen Z, something like 18%, maybe 26% of the campus kids were saying, no, they can't do anything. They have to just take it. Unbelievable, um, in my opinion. But Sounds like you were talking to the right people. Um, love to talk to you about that sometime, but that would take up the whole hour. <laughs> you you interviewed on your podcast, Subtle Rampage. Check that out, y'all. Uh, Dr. Michael Schwartz. I've interviewed many doctors during the COVID era, the ones that would tell the truth, at least. Uh, one we even helped get his medical license back from the corrupt Texas Board of Medicine they mm -hmm. took away from him um, for not wearing a mask, if you can believe it. Uh, what did Dr. Schwartz, uh, the author of the book, Fauci's Fiction, leave you with? Um, he left me feeling like I didn't have to do all the work. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I, I've been feeling this way for so long, um, but just this idea of like, I, I feel like everybody's kind of like putting COVID out of their minds now. Not everybody, but a lot of people, you know, they're just trying to move on with things. They're tired of talking about COVID. They're, they're sick of it. Um, and I don't blame them whatsoever. I am also tired of it. But at the same time, I feel like those of us who, you know, saw through all of this stuff and experienced what we did need to, we have a responsibility to kind of keep putting that out there and saying, this is what happened and we can't let it happen again. Um, and this is how it affected us and we can't let it happen again. Um, and so I, I, I've been feeling like I need to talk about it for so long and I've been, and it's, it's just been on my mind for the, since it happened. And, um, and he left me feeling like I, ha it just clicked in my head for some reason after my interview with him, I was like, you know, there are plenty of people out here who can focus on what the lie was with the data. There are plenty of other people who can focus on, uh, you know, the experience that people had in the military with COVID. Like there, there are plenty of people in each of these arenas of how COVID affected us that can come up and say, this is what happened. I'm going to make people remember it. And I don't have to be that person for all the arenas. I just have to be that person for what I experienced in the arena, in the arena that I was in. So that that's what clicked with me. But it was a really great conversation with Dr. Schwartz overall. It was really interesting to me. But yeah. And there's over 100 campuses to this day, including Clemson and South Carolina, conservative red state that mandate uh, vaccines for everybody, staff, students and whatnot to come on campus. So it's crazy to me that after all that we've learned and what we know, uh, that's still happening. Um, you also did a show uh, on Tennessee conservatives acting like liberals and letting big, big tech censor them. Uh, I think YouTube actually deleted it, which pretty much proves your case that they do that. Uh, what, did, what did that show say before it got taken down? Um, I think the one you're referencing was the Forge and Anvil episode. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that was a while ago. I don't remember specifics, but I know that was the week of like the the balloon, the spy balloon, and uh, 
And so we talked a little bit about that. And then the the meat of our episode that was the reason that that got taken down was uh, we discussed some of the stuff that came out from Project Veritas about the uh, Pfizer CEO uh, pretty much being like, this is our plan. So mm-hmm. that's what we talked about. All we did was uh, Connor, the guy who does Forge and Anvil podcast, he, he read through the article. We just discussed it a little bit, gave our thoughts, and it was a very... It, it was the most interesting part of the episode to me, but it was a very small fraction of the entire episode. And that's what got the whole thing taken down. The algorithm caught that. Yeah, I was on the show with them uh, the day that the uh, the revival kicked off in Kentucky. And one of the guests was actually a student up there. So that was pretty amazing. Uh, I haven't been back, actually. I wonder why. Um, <laughs> so uh, moving on, according to a press release from the U.S. Attorney's Office, a federal grand jury in the Western District of Tennessee has officially indicted three Memphis pastors and four other Tennessee business owners for alleged misuse of COVID-19 relief funds. That is your most recent article. What is going on with that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, shocking, shocking surprise, guys. Uh, People committed fraud uh, with government funding. That's so weird. Um (laughs) (laughs) Pastors of all people, though. Yeah, and what one of the pastors actually, and I put it in the article, was approached by another news publication and pretty much was like, I could all I can say is that it's not how it looks. And I'm like, you know, and that's the thing is like, I use the word allegedly in there. I don't know uh, what exactly the situation is here. I mean, we just know that they've been indicted. Uh, they have not been like officially proven guilty or anything you know innocent until proven guilty is a good thing but at the same time um you know there there were a lot of people i think we all know it there were a lot of people that were filing for covid relief money um for their businesses for themselves whatever it was uh that were falsifying information just because they knew that the money was sitting there and whoever was going to get to it was going to get it um I, I I just I'm not personally shocked by it. Uh, you know, throwing that three of them were pastors in there, you know, helps with the headlines. People actually pay attention to it. But I'm like, are, are we really surprised? I'm like, I don't think it matters who it is um, yeah. that did it. But ah, so cynical for such a young age by the yes, I know it's, it's actually true. And another pastor, a Tennessee pastor died after he went into cardiac arrest during a triathlon this last Saturday, according to his church, Tim Shelton was the pastor of group leadership and family life at Bellevue Baptist Church. Shelton reportedly suffered the cardiac arrest during the swim portion of the third annual St. Jude Ironman triathlon. I can't help but thinking that might have something to do with what Dr. Schwartz was talking about, what you're talking about, but there's no way to know unless they tell us. Do you know anything about that story? I, I don't know anything about that story, but yeah, it's yeah. brand new news. So that's, that's okay. Not fair to ask that, but I do know what you do know about your recent one was about Andy Ogles and him trying to prevent Palestinian refugees from coming to America. I think Tom Tiffany joined him in that from Wisconsin. And he was also one of three Tennesseans to get grade of F for his support of Ukraine, meaning Tim Burchett, Andy, and Diana Harshberger are against aid to Ukraine 100% to get an F. That's pretty good. I don't want an A in that one. How do you feel about Andy, a first-time congressman up there that I know Brandon and Tennessee Conservative actually endorsed, and the Tennessee congresspeople in D.C. in general? Well, uh, I'm always a little skeptical uh, once people kind of make their way out of like local representation because I've just I, I've I've interned in uh, you know a DC representatives office and then I've interned in state 
legislative offices. And so I've kind of like seen what both sides of the coin look like a little bit. And I I just kind of, I can't help this feeling, but you can do more when you are a state representative than you can do uh, when you're up in D.C. trying to, you know, deal with all these people and the bills are like way bigger and they're trying to push everything into one thing and then they spend longer deliberating on it because there's a million things in this one big thing and it's too much. Uh, but <laughs> I, I so I get a little bit skeptical when people go away from the state legislature and, you know, head up to D.C., but uh, just because I feel like you can do less and their uh, media responses tend to start sounding a little bit uh, similar to each other, <laughs> which I don't blame them. But they get, they get uh, the talking point memo. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, and while I was at Hagerty's office, I spent time writing talking points. So, you know, I like I, I, I kind of have seen the behind the scenes of how both function and it's just kind of like, I don't know. Uh, but from what I have seen of Representative Ogles so far, I, I like the guy. Um, I met him briefly at an event like a couple months ago, and he was very nice. Um, so I don't have anything bad to say about him at this point. <laughs> okay. But as far as acting like a legislature, would you say he's been more of the conservative uh, representative that the Tennessee conservative endorsed and wanted to see out of him? Or has he been just kind of another swamp creature that went rhino immediately and might be looking to to, to his next job as senator or president or who knows what? I think if he had gone rhino immediately, um, then I probably wouldn't like him. So (laughs) I think, I think we're good. We're going good so far. He's holding up his end of the conservative bargain so far. Okay. Well, another article of yours, and that's what I was hoping to run through with some of your recent work. The Tennessee highway patrol recently identified illegal immigrants in Charleston, Tennessee. These individuals, mostly adult males, illegally crossed the border around Eagle Pass, Texas, One that was deported twice, this isn't in your article, but it happened, just committed two murders in Tennessee, completely uh, avoidable crimes if they just enforced the deportation. What do you think Tennessee has done about illegal immigration? Uh, Marsha Blackburn tweets about it a lot, but not sure much is being done and can be done by one of 100 senators. Uh, We did did just send 1,500 National Guard to the border out of Tennessee. Um, But what, what exactly do you have in your mind about illegal immigration? Um, well, not too terribly much. It honestly just kind of infuriates me every time that I think too much about it. Um, (laughs) I I think that like the story that I I wrote about the the illegal immigrants being identified here in Tennessee, I think like stuff like that is important because I don't think people realize, um, like how close to home this stuff actually hits. They hear about their representatives and their senators in D.C. talking about it all the time. They hear Biden mentioning it. They hear, you know, whoever in, like, the big national news mentioning it. They hear people talk about it down at the border. Okay, but they're not they're not thinking about it in terms of, um, are these people actually going to show up in my city? And, um, and when they do start showing up in your city, how is that going to impact you? How is that going to impact the businesses? How is that going to impact the schools? People don't think about it. So, uh, you know, I, I just think it's good to kind of catch those stories when they do come out and be like, hey, by the way, um, this is happening where you live. What do you think about that? Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a mess and we don't need to be letting people into our country illegally, but we are just letting them in. We are just letting mm-hmm. them in. We're not doing Chattanooga has been a destination location for a lot of these people. So Nashville may not even know, and certainly Memphis and certainly maybe even Knoxville to some extent, not know the extent of how much illegal immigration is affecting our state because 
they're not seeing it. It's not hitting them in their grocery stores or their parking lots or their streets, but in Chattanooga, it certainly is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly it. Uh, so let's see. Do you think we'll ever see the Covenant Killers body of texts and laptops and diaries and what they call the manifesto, but really being a, or is it so far gone now from the news cycle, it's just a black hole? Um, do I think we will ever see it? I'm not going to give a guarantee on that, but I, 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 it's not looking like it, is it? It's really not looking like it. I mean, things are tied up in legal stuff. And so it, at this point, I feel like it's a bit of a lost cause. I personally have been of the opinion since it started the debate over whether or not they should become public or not, these records. Um, I've felt like it just makes perfect sense to give this information over to the people who have to legislate. Um that's just my opinion. I, I don't personally care. I don't need to know all the details. If you want to release a public version that's blocked out a lot of the stuff, that's fine with me. But I, I think the people who are going to be legislating on these issues, if you're going to call a special session and expect them to do that, uh, they should have the information about the inciting incident. Okay, like they shouldn't be going blindly off of what the news has said and what the family is saying and what the police have put out. They should have all the details. That's just my opinion. Are we going to get them? Probably not. Okay. Yeah. And yesterday they just came out and said that uh, they didn't want to because it would give away the schematics of the school, even though they are all available on Google Maps. Uh, so <laughs> the cover up continues. I see. Do, Steve. We, do we think that the, um, it, is there any doubt that the state legislators, like, do, do we think any of our state legislators or lawmakers are going to like go shoot up a school anytime soon? Because if not, we should just um, give them the stuff that they need. Well, the way some of your competitors like Tennessee Heller talk about our legislature, yes, they may think that's exactly what's going to happen is that all of Nashville's capital will empty everyone with 10 AK-47 strapped to their back and shoot up every Christian school possible because they want to. Uh, but no, of course not. Um, what did you make of the special session that we paid for and suffered through and much ado about nothing? Or did something come out of it that you thought was good? Uh, well, what they passed two bills. One was their payment bill, like to get paid, like I, th <laughs> the appropriations bill. Yeah. So I, I don't think anything really came out of it except for, you know, Tennessee looking like a fool to the rest of the country. Uh, you know, that that was kind of just the, the theme for both legislative sessions this year. But um, I yeah. actually it was very amusing to me. I kept up with the whole special session um, because one is just very exciting stuff to report on. And then two, it's just very interesting to me. I'm one of those people that watches C-SPAN in my free time. So, um, <laughs> but I, I brought, I actually, my siblings, you know, the youngest is eight, the oldest is 18. Uh, I brought them to the state Capitol during the special session and uh, they were bewildered by the protests going on. We were the only people that day that we went who weren't there to protest. Um, and, and I mean like anti, like these people were wanting gun control. Um, and so, but I have the blue hair right now, so I fit right yeah. in. They thought yeah. that I brought the kids to like, you know, make a statement about yeah. protecting kids and getting rid of guns. So everybody was very nice. The protesters kept offering us signs all day, but yeah. um, I thought you no. might be a Seahawks fan because that's very Seahawks colory, but <laughs> it's just washing out like this, but yeah, no, is the special session was very interesting, but I don't think uh, anything came out of it. Yeah. All right. Well, I only have a few more minutes with you, but I wanted to ask you this. So speaker Sexton 
mm-hmm. has threatened to return all the federal funds for education, about $1.8 billion, because of the strings attached that come with the money to teach CRT and LGBTQ agenda, all that stuff Moms for Liberty hates, um, that comes out of the U.S. Department of Education. So the special session kind of smoke and mirrored all that because it disappeared into the regular session, which ended in April. Maybe it'll come back again next session. They are talking about it, and here we are out of session. So maybe it'll come back, maybe it won't. But the Department of Education and unions certainly don't want that. You wrote an article about Jackson Madison County School Systems Superintendent Dr. Marlon King threatening to sue the state of Tennessee over the approval of a classical education charter school initiative, which is the alternative to the $1.8 billion that the feds are giving us to do our own charters. They're obviously panicking on the left for failing schools and Tennessee legislature may even pass an A through F grading system so parents can know if their public school is failing. Uh, It is, spoiler alert. (laughs) What do you think of that grading system, the TCAP scores, the holding back the third graders and the merit of Dr. King's lawsuit against the state? Well, that's a lot, but (laughs) no, um, I mean, I, I grew up homeschooled, and so my my opinion when it comes to a lot of this uh, this uh, debate about public schools and charter schools and uh, what's best for the public school curriculum, a lot of it for me just boils down to just homeschool your kids. But uh, <laughs> but uh, the the TCAF scores and everything, I think everybody was freaking out earlier this year when the when that came out uh, that people that they, that these kids were like failing and a lot of them couldn't read, and then they were talking about holding back the third graders and all this stuff, and. I was just kind of looking at it like two things here. Um, one, COVID. Um, are we not remembering that these kids were like so much of their education was put on a back burner and they missed so much because of COVID? Um, we're freaking out about this and we're blaming it on the school system when like literally they they, they were missing out on so much. Um, and so I'm like, we're, we're not taking into account for that when we argue that the school system is so bad, even though it is. But I'm like, I feel like when people take that approach to the the test rates coming out and everything, like how these kids are doing, I'm like, you can't look at the how these kids are doing in school right now and then simply blame it on the school system. I'm like, I wish you could, but you have to take a different approach because the reality is, is that you're like, you're bypassing a major factor here in that COVID impacted these kids. So um, there's that. But I, I do think that the the school system sucks and that people should just pull their kids out and homeschool them. But that's just my opinion. That's a Tennessee opinion or a national opinion? Because we talk about both here on the show. Uh, that's a national opinion. I, yeah. I've lived in a few different states and that, that's a national opinion. All right. Well, as we approach the end here, do you get invited to the Tennessean holiday parties for journalists? Oh, yeah. All the time. We're best buddies over there. No, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, they gave me my moniker, so I'll always respect them for calling me a, 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 a conservative advocacy podcast. Um, does that make you sad to miss out on those? To hang out Not with those really. journalists? No. no. Maybe if I was more of an extrovert, I would be really hurt, but I, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> Maybe you'll get that Channel 5 grumpy guy after you, too, uh, if you land a story he cares about. Uh, that'll make you more popular, for sure. Um, well, what else are you working on uh, that we can get a sneak peek of? Oh, uh, as far as articles go? Yeah, yeah, news, news, your I job. Don't I don't know. You don't know what's it, it next? Just, okay. It comes up uh, something new every day. Um, I might be coming out with another article on Wilson County and uh, We the People, because I know that they keep 
they're keeping at it. It's always a different book that's just uh, particularly egregious. And I was an English major in college. So if I think something is disgusting um, for middle school students, uh, it probably is. Uh, but yeah, uh, other than that, I mean, the stories roll in every day and I just write on them when I hear about them. So I don't know what's coming up, but I I, I guarantee you it's probably something interesting. So you should go check out our news at Tennessee Conservative News. Yeah, tell us where else we can find you. Uh, you said you're not big on social media, but you have to have something or else you can't even be alive these days. So where can people go find out more about you and, and follow you? Um, well, people can go check out and keep up with Subtle Rampage Podcast, which is my own personal uh, brainchild. And that's on YouTube at Subtle Rampage Podcast and the same handle on Instagram and Facebook. And then I'm also on Twitter, but I don't post anything. So I don't know if there's a point in plugging that. <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe you should. I could use a defender once in a while. But anyway, I hope to have you on again sometime very soon. And thank you for coming on with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show. If you're like me and sick of the woke, unfunny content coming out of Hollywood these days and looking for something new and exciting, I found the website for you, movienight.com. The folks at movienight.com, that's movienight, one word, .com, has the first universal loyalty program that offers businesses like yours the opportunity to attract customers with their exclusive lineup of world-class titles. Titles like Daddy Daughter Trip with Rob Schneider, Triumph with Terrence Howard, and Nefarious, last year's blockbuster hit. Movie Night was founded to positively impact society through media. Check it out at movienight.com and enjoy the show. I don't Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what'd you think of our guest, Adelia Kirchner with TennesseeConservativeNews.com? Oh, what a wonderful breath of fresh air. Um, she joins my sons. They're all in their 20s and they're all conservatives. And uh, our church has a handful of uh, good conservative uh, Christian young men and women. Our church happens to be very active in well, kind of voicing its opinion on what goes on in this world. So I think there's a good training ground there. Um, but she's right, though, Steve. You can go to Christian school campuses. You can go to uh, non-Christian school campuses, colleges, and the the zeitgeist, zeitgeist of these zeitgeist. things is um, very well. What were you like when you were uh, 20, Steve? I was, I just came to the Lord, but before that, I was a party animal. So I was, yeah, I was like living, let I live. Was, I was very drunk. I was very heavy. I was into what I call the church of me now. Yep. Uh, and I could care less about uh, politics and, and uh, things that were taking place far away. But uh, once I graduated college and started doing my own self-research and self-learning, I got a real fast education and exactly that. And and what I love about her is she's not cynical. She's funny. Yes. Uh, but um, she has definitely seen the dirty, rotten underbelly of politics and knows better than to think that there's anybody out there that's going to be the white knight and save her. She's going to have to do it herself. And on that note, I thought this was interesting. Remembering Silent Cal 100 years later, Coolridge 
Could Light Our Way by Don Fetter, Washington Times. Not a young reporter, but still interesting what he had to say. He's come down to us as a character, Silent Cal, a sour, skinflint, do-nothing president from an age of indolence, the 20s. The reality is light years removed from this cardboard character. On August 2nd, it will be 100 years. Yes, I've held on to this for a while, so last month. It will be 100 years since the beginning of Calvin Coolidge's presidency. He was helping out on the family farm in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, when word reached then-Vice President Coolidge that his predecessor, Warren G. Harding, had died. The oath of office was administered by his father, a notary, by the light of a kerosene lamp in the family parlor. It seems to symbolize the man's simplicity. As president and as a man, he stood for hard work, economy, personal responsibility, and integrity. Unlike politicians of our time, with big mouths and egos to match, Coolidge was quiet, thoughtful. It is, quote, it is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country for him to know that he is not a great man, Coolidge observed. He produced balanced budgets, reduced the national debt by one third, and cut the top tax rate to 25%. Wow. Coolidge called overtaxation legalized larceny, like I call it, legalized theft. He and his Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, invented supply-side economics almost 60 years before Ronald Reagan, who called him, quote, one of our most underrated presidents. Coolridge didn't lead the nation into war or through an economic crisis. He mostly got out of the way and let individuals and businesses succeed on their own. At the start of his administration, only 35% of American homes had electricity. By 1929, fully two-thirds did progress fueled by government inaction at a time when the ku klux klan reached its heyday he embraced catholics jews and black americans he judged people by their character not their race or religion in 1924 speaking to more than a hundred thousand catholics of the holy name society coolridge praised its work which was he said to impress upon people the necessity for reverence this is a beginning of our proper conception of ourselves, of our relationship to each other, and our relationship to our creator. Wow. Coolidge was a moralist. At the laying of a cornerstone for the Jewish Community Center in Washington, after commending the con contributions of Jewish patriots, he approvingly quoted historian William H. Leckie's observation that, quote, Hebraic mortar cemented the foundation of American democracy, end quote. So that's a little history lesson from a century ago while we're dealing with Hamas from 2,000 years ago with the same old stuff. What do you think, Steve? Well, it makes me want to know a little bit more about him, but a moralist, we need a moralist in our um, White House cabinet, in our city cabinets, in our state cabinets. I, I think morality has gone gone the way when big, buzz, big budgets and big business and money and... Uh, all sorts of shenanigans have taken over, don't you think? Absolutely, absolutely. We do a show on it every single day. Here's what else is on my mind today. This from the Daily Mail, Elana Salvani, today, October 17th. How Brussels became the terror capital of Europe. Stick with me, I'll tie it all together. As another ISIS fanatic brings carnage to Belgium, how migrant ghettos turned into a breeding ground for fanaticism that has sparked some of Europe's worst atrocities. Not for the first time, Brussels has been rocketed by a terror atrocity thought to have been carried out by an Islamic State fanatic. A gunman 
who was armed with an automatic rifle, murdered two Swedish football supporters who had been out enjoying their night out in a Belgium capital. Abdesalam Lassoud, 45, believed to have been an asylum seeker of Tunisia origin, was shot dead by police in a cafe in the Sherbik area the next day following an intensive overnight manhunt. He had been living illegally in the municipality, a poor area of the city home to a large immigrant population, many of whom come from Turkey and North Africa and are of Muslim faith. The neighborhood came into focus following the 2016 Brussels bombings as it situated a stone's throw away from Molambique, Molambique, another area marred by its history of terrorist activity. Areas like these, experts say, can become incubators of violent extremism with ghettoization occurring in the city, which, while diverse, remains starkly divided between rich and poor, European and immigrant in many areas. Both Sherbeek and Molenbeek occupy an area known as the Poor Crescent of Brussels and have seen hostilities erupt into street violence over the years. Spates of stabbings have taken place, including of police officers, and addresses have been subject to police raids over radicalization fears. Almost every time an Islamic terrorist atrocity occurs, there is a link with Molenbeek, then Belgium Prime Minister Charles Michael admitted in 2015. Molenbeek's links to terrorist activities stretch back to 2001, when terrorists who assassinated Ahmed Shah Massoud, an Afghan politician who opposed the Taliban, were sheltered there. Anti-terrorism investigations went on to be conducted in the midst, in the district, in the wake of the 2004 Madrid train bombings, the 2014 Jewish Museum attack in Brussels, and following the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris in 2015. Once known as Little Manchester due, its, due to its industrial past, Molenbeek has frequently been named one of the poorest areas in Belgium and is separated from more wealthy neighborhoods by a canal. High unemployment rates, three times the national average, plagued the young population of the North Brussels municipality, and recent reports suggest a rise in drug dealing in the area, with families turning to the drugs trade as a business model. Anthropologist Johan Lehman told Foreign Policy that ISIS used drug dealing networks to recruit members in the neighborhood. While attacks by Islamist extremists have been scarce before the recent shootings, residents have also expressed worry that jihad sleeper cells could be operating. So there you have it, taking a democracy, taking what Calvin Coolidge talked about into a sanctuary, and here's what happens. And so here's what happens at home. Listen to clip number one. It's warming up. It's warming up. And a Tennessee representative wants to keep Palestinian refugees out of the U.S. And to do that, he's proposing a controversial new bill. All right, so Carly's on the alert desk for us. This would actually stop the Biden administration from issuing visas to people with Palestinian passports. Oh, that's right. It's called the Gaza Act, or the Guaranteeing Aggressors Zero Admission Act. And Tennessee Congressman Andy Ogles is one of the sponsors on the bill, Palestinians are fleeing Gaza as Israel gears up for its next stage of the war. They're planning more airstrikes and significant ground operations on Hamas. This bill would prevent the Biden administration from allowing any Palestinians into the U.S. 
Ogles tweeted about the bill saying, quote, we must stop Biden from importing, importing terrorists, end quote. Meanwhile, we are hearing from Palestinians who say they are not terrorists and they condemn the actions of Hamas. So far, no response from the Biden administration on the bill. And remember, the House still does not have a speaker and without one, they can't pass anything. Exactly right. So 20 Republicans voted against Jim Jordan today of Ohio for speaker. Uh, so we don't have a speaker, which means we're leaderless on the right. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee, WSMV, a Tennessee lawmaker plans to file legislation that would prevent the Biden administration from allowing Palestinians to seek refuge into the U.S. Rep. Andy Ogles, freshman from Tennessee, we talked about him earlier, is joining Wisconsin Republican Tom Tiffany in proposing a ban on issuing visas to any Palestinians trying to flee Gaza as war continues with Israel and Hamas. You know who else is doing that? Egypt, Jordan, the places that know these folks best. They don't want them there either because they are known for causing a lot of trouble. Tiffany has called the prospective legislation the Gaza Act or guaranteed aggressors zero emission, according to the conservative outlet Breitbart News. <laughs> You can't let President Biden abuse our parole and visa rules to bring unvetted Palestinians into American communities. The war he did with thousands of unvetted Afghan, the way he did with thousands of unvetted Afghans. Tiffany wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, quote, I introduced the Gaza Act to protect Americans' national security. Mm -hmm. Just like Brussels tried. Palestinians is in besieged Gaza, crowded into hospitals and schools on Monday, seeking shelter and running low on food and water, according to the Associated Press. By the way, Israel provides 11% of Gaza's water, and they tore up all the water pipes in order to make rockets. So they could have had as much water as they wanted. More than a million people have fled their homes ahead of an expected Israeli ground invasion aimed to destroying Hamas after its fighters rampage through southern Israel. Quote, we must stop Biden from importing terrorists, Ogles wrote on X. We must stop Biden from importing terrorists. Amen. Biden is on his way to Israel today, likely to strong arm Benjamin Netanyahu to not invade Gaza. So his and Obama's Iran deal can continue on for some unholy reason I cannot fathom. We will find out soon enough. Stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof, look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Okay, this is Todd and Jesse Camp, and we are formerly management of Donaldson Bowen Center, Nashville's oldest lanes, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View Tennessee Podcast. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. 
Citizen journalism is rapidly emerging as an invaluable part of delivering the news, with the exception of the web and the ever-decreasing size and cost of camera phones and video cameras, the ability to commit acts of journalism is spreading to everyone. Ariana Huffington. I knew her back then. Better still, I got to meet Andrew Beitbart in my LA days. He worked for her. Not a great guy to hang out with smelled like cigarettes and alcohol, but a great citizen journalist that blew up the world to freedom of the press, in my opinion. Also spawned Steve Bannon, Ben Shapiro, Charlie Kirk, and to some extent me, I guess. Uh, he wrote a good book too. You should check that out. Politics is downstream from culture, he said. Let's dissect that. I think politicians took that from his mouth and took it to heart and started doing culture to flip it on its head. Now we have culture is downstream from what AOC and the squad and Nancy Pelosi want us to have, like woke Hollywood from Disney and Bud Light commercials with men dressed up as women. I'm a former lefty. I understand how vicious these people are. I understand that they feel they have the right to control the sandbox. And I'm trying to orchestrate media that isn't just out there to push the right of center libertarian narrative. I'm out there to destroy the false order, the false control that the left has in controlling the mainstream media in America. Andrew Breitbart. His boss, Ariana, was a lefty in sheep's clothing. The original rhino, her husband, was an elected Republican in California and ran on family values, but was homosexual. She sold her company to AOL for $315 million, the Huffington Post, in 2011. Maybe the first grifter Republican family. I don't know. I would trust citizen journalism as much as I would trust citizen surgery. Morally safer. Longtime 60 Minutes reporter. That quote proves he and 60 Minutes and ABC are part of the entrenched institutionalism of the news. Citizens are where it's at, like Jonathan Cho and maybe me. You know, I'll let you decide. On a sad note, Suzanne Marie Mahoney was born in 1946 and started acting in the late 60s and early 70s when she had smaller roles in the movies Bullet with Steve McQueen and Magnum Force, Clint Eastwood. However, Summers got her big break when she was cast for her role as Chrissy on Three's Company along with the late John Ritter. Suzanne Summers made another name for herself as the spokesperson and model for the Thighmaster fitness pro product in the 90s. She died this week at 76. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Adelia, Adelia Kirshner, oh man, for making sure all politics and all news stays local. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time and glory to God.
Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.